We give thanks unto the Almighty God without our, our peace in a world of conflict. Our rest in a rest of glory. Our help in a very sick world. And so our Father, we thank thee now that thou mightest give us peace rest and health. Thou mightest refresh us by thy word and by thy spirit, so that we may resume our responsibilities, the blessed assurance of thy presence and thy victory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our scripture is Judges 9, 1 through 21. Judges 9, 1 through 21, Bramble Men. Judges 9, 1 through 21. And Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Pekin and to his mother's brethren, and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Pekin. Years of all the men of Shechem. Whether it's better for you, either that all the sons of Jeroboam, which are three score and ten persons, reign over you, or that lots reign over you. Remember also that I am your foe and your brother. And his mother's brethren spake again in the ears of all the men of Shechem all these words, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. They gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-Beer, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. And he went unto his father's house with Ophrah and slew his brethren, the sons of Jeroboam, being three score and ten persons, upon one stone. Notwithstanding yet, Joseph, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, so he hid himself. But all the men of Shechem gathered together in all the house of Amalo, and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the floor that was in Shechem. And when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim, and lifted up his voice, and cried, and said unto them, Hearken unto me, men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. The trees went forth, time to anoint a king over them, and they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. But the olive tree said unto them, Should I leave my fatness, wherewith by me they honor God of man? And go to be promoted over the trees. The tree said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou, and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine with cheerest God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees unto the bramble, Come thou, and reign over us. The bramble said unto the trees, If in truth he anoints me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. 
Did not let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if he hath done truly and sincerely, and that he hath made Abimelech king, and if he hath dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hand, for my father fought for you, and adventured his life far, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. They are risen up against my father's house this day, and have slain his son, three score and ten persons upon one stone, that made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem, because he is their brother. If he then have dealt truly and sincerely with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice ye in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice with you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem, the house of Milo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Abimelech. Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and dwelt there, for fear of Abimelech his brother. The story narrated in this chapter as a whole is very simply told. We know the person referred to as Jeroboam by his more common name. Both names are given and cited in Judges 8.35 as Gideon. Gideon died. He left behind him 72 sons. One of these was the son of a handmaiden. His name was Abimelech. And Abimelech went to his relatives, his mother's relatives in Shechem, and conspired with them to seize power over that part of Palestine. They were ready to go along with him, gave him a considerable amount of silver ingots, so that he hired mercenary troops, <coughs> went to his father's home in Ophrah, seized it, and killed seventy of his brothers, had them beheaded on one stone. The youngest of his brothers, a very young man, Jotham, alone escaped. Abimelech then returned to Shechem and was there crowned king over that part of Palestine. During the coronation ceremonies, which were held at a particular point, young Jotham climbed on top of a cliff from whence he could speak to the crowd gathered below, and yet it would have taken them too long to get up there to have any hope of capture. And from then, he spoke unto them in peril. And then Jotham fled. Jotham's parable was possessed. Within three years, fire went out, as he said, from one to another. And these people began to destroy one another. 
until finally all those parties involved in this conspiracy and murder had destroyed each other. The land was rid of them. It was an ugly, vicious act that they had perpetrated, and the conclusion was one befitting it. Our concern today is with Jotham's parable, the parable of the priests. <clears throat> the most famous, perhaps, of all the parables of the Old Testament, and deservedly so. Jotham spoke to a captive audience, and he gave them a parable that was not only interesting, but quite humorous as well. He said that a number of the trees had decided that they needed a king. And so a delegation of the trees went from tree to tree to ask one of them to be king over them. And they went first of all to the olive tree. Now the olive tree is perhaps the most single important in world history. The olive tree has functioned throughout history in a way that very few of us realize. Because in antiquity, and still in many parts of the world, the olive is basic to human economy. Olive oil and olives themselves being a basic part of the human diet a daily part of it. So that with olives and the oil of olives and one or two other things, many people throughout history have lived out their lives and lived quite comfortably. One might say that close to the olive in eminence in human history has been fostered. The olive, too, has a hardihood that is almost second to none. Only the redwood rivals the olive. And in some respects, the olive tree is even more outstanding than the redwood. It is quite reliably stated by a number of scholars that the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane are from the same rootstocks of the trees already old in New Testament times that were there when our Lord prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were indeed cut down and the orchard entirely destroyed with the fall of Jerusalem. But the roots of the olives are very, very strong and healthy, and they send us new shoots even though they be cut down repeatedly. The wood also of the olive is a very fine kind of wood and where it is abundantly available, used in the manufacture of many things. Thus the olive tree was the first choice, the most distinguished tree. And so when they came to the olive tree and said, Reign thou over us, the olive tree said unto them, Should I leave my fatness for a 
whereby by means, wherewith by means they honor God and man, whom he promoted over the priests. And so the priests next went to the fig tree and said, Come thou and reign over us. Again they have gone to a tree that has an important role in human history, and especially in ancient times in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean world, the fig tree was an important part of the economy of that area. We might add that these three trees selected the olive, the fig, and the grapevine are also extremely important in the economy of the state of California, far more than most people realize. But the fig tree also refused, saying, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go to be promoted over the priests? Next they went to the vine, come thou and reign over us. And again, the great vine has a distinguished role in the history of mankind, not only for the fruit, but also for the raisins and for the juice and the wine made from it. And the vine also refused, saying, Should I leave my wine which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the priests? Thus, on all sides they were refused, and so finally they came to the bramble or thistle, and said, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. If not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. This then is the parable. It's an amusing one as well as a very telling. Because bramble men are around us, and we live in a time of bramble thistles that have come to pass. The pretension, the delusion of grandeur that the bramble has is, of course, quite pointed in Jotham's parable and amusing, if it were not also tragic. The bramble says to all the priests, the lordly palm, the olive, the apple, the apricot, the cherry, to the grapevine, come thou and rest in my shade. And so it is with bramble men in church and state, bramble men around us. It is the bramble men that lust for power, and bramble men who feel that they are so great that the palm and the olive can rest in their shade. And so bramble men have an illusion as to their importance and their height. And bramble men in every age are the ones who are ready to take power ready to seize power. And whenever you concentrate power at any point, it is the brambles, the thistles, 
the bramble men were ready to assume power. The other trees, the other men, see life not in terms of vainglorious honor and power, but in terms of utility, in terms of usefulness, in terms of service to God and to man. And so the trees that truly bear fruit are not the ones that are in search of power in a great name. Today, the bramble men around us are at the top, and they demand more and more concentration of power. And the bramble men tell us that now life has become so complicated that it is no time any longer for the old freedoms. It is time for the palm trees and the olives to bend down and to take orders from the thistle, from the bramble. Life is too complex for them to be able to bear fruit without direction from the bramble. In church, too, we see the brambles at the top, all around us. Bramble men are the men who rise to power because when men have become brambles, they want bramble men to wait over. I recall vividly an experience once some years ago when it was necessary in a church to dismiss an assistant pastor because of his incompetence as well as his theological weakness. And it was interesting to see that the men who were his champions were the ones who most despised him. This is precisely what they wanted. They wanted a man at the helm of the church whom they could look down upon, whom they could despise. So they could look to him and say, I'm better than he is, so I have some standing with God. In other words, they wanted leadership that they could feel superior to. Because their standard was not the word of God, the man, and so they were exalted as they could look down at their leader. And I recall, too, the remark of one woman, a Catholic, who instead of being disillusioned by what she saw at a retreat in the conduct of some of the clergy, found it most imperative to her because she could then say, well, if they're Catholic leaders, I'm a good Catholic person. In other words, not the standard of God, but the sensibility of men and a sense of Pharisaic superiority. Such people love radical leaders and they demand 
And this is why they may criticize the Bramble men in church and state. But they will follow them. They will do nothing to destroy their practice. Because this is the only standard they want. Something they can feel superior to. And so it is that Bramble men create leadership. But the Bramble said, If in truth he anoint me king over you, then come, put your trust in my shadow. Now, for a palm tree and an olive tree, an apricot, an apple, peach tree to rest under the shadow or shade of a bramble or a thistle, it is necessary for them to be cut down. Only if they are cut down to the ground can they rest under the shade of a bramble or thistle. And so what was the bramble demanding? Society must be leveled. There must be an equality of all under me. And equality is always integration downward. Because the bramble can never hope to grow to the height of the palm tree or of the olive. And so the bramble says to all the trees to have a truly equal society, level yourselves so that you can rest under my shade. And so the destruction of all social order follows. Jotham concluded his parable by saying, if you have done these things in honesty and integrity, then may all be well but if what you have done has been evil, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and the house of Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Abimelech. Let fire come out from one to the other and destroy them. Now the bramble is highly inflammable. It burns easily and quickly. Let a spark touch it and it goes up in a puff. The Bramble Society has no lasting power. It is a society in which the leadership is worthless, as worthless as a Bramble bush or a system. And everything that accepts it has become worthless because they have ceased to be living trees and have become dead stumps that a bramble can spread shade over. So when the spark hits, it goes up and comes smoke. The bramble society has no lasting power. We are living in a bramble world and in a bramble society. The brambles reign over us. 
countries with something like pride and respect. But it has been a long time since we could look to the leadership of any country with anything resembling respect. Rather, our feelings are more one of shame as we look to those in high places. We live in a bramble world. And the bramble world will go up in smoke. So it is important for us to be faced that wall. Stand in terms of faith. Give thanks unto thee, Almighty God, for thy word and for thy so great salvation. We thank thee, our God, that thy word is true, that even as Abimelech, the bramble, and his society of bramble men destroyed one another, so throughout the ages the bramble men and the bramble Make us strong in faith, therefore, our Father, so that as we survey the world around us, we may know that thy power is unchanged still, that our bramble world will go up in smoke. Those who stand in terms of thy earth shall flourish. Like a tree planted by rivers of water. Plant us, our Father, therefore, firmly in thy word and in thy spirit, that we may prosper and abound unto thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions?
Isaiah said that when a society reaches the point of corruption, uh, wise men will not serve. And he also characterized uh, such a society as one in which women and children rule over men. And we see that today too, because in most homes the children rule the roots, and in many marriages the women for the pain. Yes. Well, the characteristic sin of man as he rebels against God is to refuse to meet his responsibility, which is to exercise dominion under God. So that men rebel against God by evading responsibility. But woman's responsibility is to be under dominion. And her rebellion is to assume authority that is not hers. So each is sinning in a particular way. Now when Adam and Eve fell, Adam's sin was that he wasn't ready to assume responsibility, but Eve's was that she wanted is God to assume responsibility. She took the leadership. He should have been exercising authority at that point. And of course, you see that today in church life, in that in most churches, men are in the minority. They don't want any responsibility. And the women are in the majority, and they're trying to take over the church and tell the pastor exactly what he should do. And that's no joke. That's one of the hardest parts of the ministry today, the fact that many women, the wrong sort, are just trying to run the church. So you see, each sins in his and her way. Well, uh, I think the men should be compelled to take their responsibility. Now, one of the ways, you see, our law has uh, progressively gone downhill in this respect. Now, it used to be that it was a part of Christian law and order that a man couldn't walk away from his responsibilities because he was the responsible creature. So what happened if he had an affair? And the child was born. He got the child. Well, you can see what that did to anything. It wasn't the girl's responsibility. She wasn't left stuck with the child. Now, what that kind of law immediately did was two things. First, the girl thought twice about any affair because she was going to lose the child. It belonged to the man. And the man thought twice about it because he couldn't walk away. He had to take that child to his home and explain it to his wife. You know, that put a damper on things. (laughs) Now, we put a premium on it, you see, because we enable the man to discharge it or to walk away from his responsibility. So we've created a society in 
in which responsibility has been placed in the wrong area. Now, if we had godly law and order, men would not be permitted to walk away from their responsibilities. And the courts wouldn't sustain them. Well, that's just one instance of many. Well, let me tell you what one of the uh, finest conservative political scientists in this country who was teaching at the time at Columbia had to say. He said it would lead to socialism to give women the vote. Why? Because he said the great work in our society is women. It's been mixed. Women have organized through clubs and associations and various activities. And what have they done? They have taken over the works of mercy in every community. So that they make sure that the human side of things is ministered to. Wherever there is any kind of charity, they are there. And he said, give women the vote and they will want to see through voting the same thing accomplished. So he said, we will get socialism very quickly now that the women are demanding and we'll soon get the vote. And he wrote that about 1920. What has happened to welfare since then? Yes, right. And you have women's groups all over the country trying to get uh, more and more welfare organized. They are the shock troops of socialism. The Women's Club, League of Women Voters, what you will, name them. They're the shock troops of socialism. Now, I'm not saying that you women should not vote because since women do have the vote today, your vote is important in counteracting this thing. But basically, the biblical conception of society is not atomistic, not individualistic, but in terms of the family. So that the vote is by the family. If there isn't a man in the household, if the woman is a widow, she should have a vote. She is then functioning as head of the household. But the basic unit should not be the individual, but the family. And I do not believe that single men should have the right to vote. Any more than I believe that men without property should vote in the counties where the property is a state. Why? The single man has to future. And when you're voting, you're voting in terms of the future. And what does a single man who's a drifter care? He's here today, gone tomorrow. He's not concerned about the future. Why should he vote? Why should he? The basic unit in terms of biblical law is the family. And no one could hold office in biblical times unless they were married. They were not regarded as a responsible man without that. And I think that's a good principle. Yes. 
significant, uh, by the way, to realize I just discovered this recently. Um, Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto and Frederick Engels in another document both define democracy, which is over 100 years ago, communism. Uh, yes, uh, he speaks of democracy there and equates it with communism. Now, when we speak of the home and the man's authority, this is not in the Victorian sense, because the Victorian era was not Christian. It was actually uh, very definitely indifferent but when you go back, for example, to the uh, old American homes, go back to the colonial period, a woman had a very responsible role. The Yankee uh, ship captain would be gone, for example, three years on a trading voyage or on a whaling ship in the China Seas or in the South Pacific. And during that time, they could be confident that their wife was managing everything because she was capable. And if the uh, man who took the ship was a trader, say, in Boston or in New York, and had a business there, he left in the confidence that his wife had everything in hand and managed the entire business during his absence. In other words, he was indeed a king, but she was the prime minister, not a flunky. In the Victorian home, the idea was that the woman was a luxury, and this is not the biblical idea. She is a helpmate. The Victorian idea was that she was to be a luxury. And so they deliberately made the woman a luxury, accentuated in every way her helplessness. For example, the uh, hourglass uh, shape and the uh, processing that it required made the woman fairly helpless. And that was the idea. She was above any practical purpose. This, too, was the purpose of a hoop skirt. How can you work with a hoop skirt? You can't even get near the thing. And this, again, was the idea. To emphasize that you were absolutely useless. And this is as alien from the biblical perspective as one can imagine. And in Proverbs 31, when it describes the uh, wife who's pregnant, what it describes is a woman who runs the entire household, the business, the farm, and everything uh, so well that her husband can become a counselor and sit at the gates, because that's what it meant to sit at the gates, to be a member of the city council or town council. And the confidence that all the enterprises are being beautifully managed by her. Yes. Yeah, 
Jesus doesn't fit into these patterns because he is the lawgiver and he is the Lord. So because he was very God, a very God, as well as very man, very man, uh, therefore uh, we cannot expect him to be exactly like us. But the disciples were all married men. And we know that Paul was a widower because he could not could not have been on the Sanhedrin otherwise. And he says, I gave my vote against Stephen, describing his conduct before he was a Christian. But his wife was not living at the time, apparently, because he speaks to the others, uh, traveling from place to place, the apostles as missionaries, with their wives. But he said, I don't burden any church uh, with the expense of a wife, let alone mine. I uh, am supporting myself. Um, yes, all right. Thank you. Well, here's that voting today in relation to what Isaiah said, voting for people today mm-hmm. as well. I mean, more importantly, on issues, but uh, in relation to what Isaiah said about a society reaching a point where wise men will not love. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the way it sometimes appears today. I mean, the yes. system is so corrupt that it's hard to imagine <coughs> the it is becoming increasingly difficult to vote, and I think you've experienced what many of us have, that at many points on the ballot we simply skip over, because it is morally impossible to vote. And when that stage is reached, all we can do is to hope and pray that there will either be a judgment or a moral reawakening so that the uh, current can be reversed. Yes, you had a question there. Yes, in relationship to this question, uh, he didn't really participate actively in any kind of community like this. I mean, he held himself above politics. Right. But he did do this, and I'm glad he brought up the question. He did not begin his ministry until approximately 30. We are not told what happened in the years between the time he was 12 years of age, visit to the temple, and the time he begins his ministry and is hailed by John the Baptist. Those years are left a blank. But, I think we can almost uh, certainly say what happened, because Joseph is on the scene when they are at the temple. Joseph is no longer on the scene when he has begun his ministry. What has happened? Joseph has died somewhere along the way. Now, what was any eldest son's responsibility in a home where the father was dead. Well, it was to provide for the family. So I think we can safely assume this fact, that our Lord became head of the household on Joseph's death and worked, provided for the family, until the other sons were old enough to assume the responsibility 
responsibility and had married and had provided a home for their mother and then he began his ministry. Because we are told that he at all points kept the law. And this was one of the requirements of the law. So that I think we can safely assume that this is what he did during those years. Of course, the uh, occultists and others have all kinds of nonsense at this point about the hidden years of Jesus, and supposedly he was in Tibet and in India learning from secret masters and so on and so forth, all of which is the most fantastic kind of rubbish. We can, I think, fairly safely assume that because Joseph is not seen, he kept the law, which meant he provided for his mother, his brothers and sisters, until one of them married and provided a home for Mary. Yes? Well, uh, when, when she brought where um, the men now they to corrupt their money process and keep it at the big moss factor and bonus that um, when Bodhi comes in around that time, when there's a great loss of bonus, do you think that would be a main reason to loss? I don't know, but I do know that there is an increasing cynicism on the part of most people with regard to the man running for office and justifiably so. Because we find increasingly the same kind of talk coming from every quarter. It was just the last few days that President Johnson said, for example, that it was time to end the Cold War belonged to a past generation and so we should be at peace with the communists. Why fight old quarrels? And almost at the same time, Mr. Nixon was saying that it was high time we made peace with Red China, <coughs> that there was no reason for a quarrel with them. Now, when you begin to hear the same kind of song, on both sides of the fence, you begin to lose any faith in the political process. Yes? Well, what is that thing about that? We don't have to work, we don't have to work in terms of restoration. Exactly. We have to work knowing that our labor, because we labor in the Lord, is never in vain. In other words, everything we do, according to Romans 8.28, the Lord makes to work together for good. But the reverse of that is that everything that everyone does outside of God, God makes to work together for evil. So that we cannot lose our effort when it is done in the name of God and in faithfulness to him adds up to something. So that feeble though our effort seems is against that of the opposition, when we faithfully discharge our duty, it is going to add up to something. We don't know how, but the duties are ours, the results are in the hands of God, and he assures us that they will add up to something.
I'd like to ask a little comment on this question about how are we going to vote for us or know what not to do with voting when we know people are actually corrupt or the things they're voting for are wrong. If we can find the principles, none of which are clear that we don't think they're going to deny then so we can find out that voting for those principles in spite of the power that they have to be able to our government. Then we do have a chance to succeed I mean, actually in action I think one of the things that uh, is most instructive in this area uh, is the experience of the Roman Empire. When the Empire came along, people were ready to see it replace the Republic because voting had become a farce. Everyone they voted in was exactly like everyone else. And so, what was the sense to voting? And of course, what happened then with the empire was that everyone who gained position in the empire was just as bad, or usually a little worse, than someone else before him. And I think one emperor really uh, revealed the absurdity and the insanity of the whole thing. He was a mad emperor, Caligula. And with all these corrupt degenerate politicians coming around him, and he was as bad as any of them, but he was insane, which was an advantage in those days. He played a good joke on the empire. They were applying for one of the highest offices under the emperor. He named his horse to the office. He thought his horse was a better candidate. Any other questions? We have time for one more. I don't have yeah. a question, but in relationship to what Mark has said, one of the sins of ancient Israel was that they looked at the nations around them to get their direction. Yes. I think this is so true of us today, one of our tables, even what we in our evaluation might consider good people and so forth. Mm-hmm. Look to those about us to be in our direction. Whereas if we look to God and follow His leading, yes. and the results of that are up to Him, it doesn't matter whether we see the results, the tangible evidence of at this moment, uh, and it will all work together for good. We don't right. have to see it, but uh, I remember when I was teaching Sunday school over and over again, and I'm sure we did this lesson for our children, when they come over and neighbor kids, everybody's doing it. You know? Yes. And uh, that God would really have a book to him Yes. I think one of the most uh, amazing and most wonderful things about the beginnings of this country was this. Those men who came over and started building their homes <laughs> in New England were as helpless as anyone could be. They didn't have a carpenter in the batch. They didn't know how to build homes. 
the homes they built were like the uh, western corrals. Have you seen them when they drive a couple of uh, boards in the ground and then weave the willows, the loose branches among them? That's what they did. They just uh, stuck those branches down between these two stakes they found in the ground and then daubed it with mud to keep the wind from whistling through. And so they were very flimsy homes. They were catching fire and burning to the ground all the time. This is how they lived for quite a while. And yet, in all of that, they were keeping diaries and uh, revealing their confidence that they were building a new civilization, a Christian civilization. And they were keeping a full record, and that's why we know so much about them. Because they knew future generations were going to look back and say, there were the beginnings of a great and marvelous civilization. Well, here they faced hostile Indians, all kinds of trouble from England, all kinds of sickness, their own utter inability because they were just a group of uh, Christians who were city folk who never had any experience, uh, even with the English countryside where everything was neat as a pin. And yet they had that confidence. They knew that in the face of all the frustration, time and time again, it seemed as though they were going to be wiped out. The French Navy heading for them, and they were a handful, and the French Navy was going to take over and drive out the English. But they had that confidence, that faith. The future was theirs under God, because they were working in terms of him. Well, I think things are so much brighter and easier for us. I, I think God will hold us guilty if we don't have the kind of faith they did and an even greater confidence in the future. The future is ours under God. Oh, yes, they were not young. Yes. <laughs> well, with that, we stand as men.